World, what's up? What is up, world? Welcome to another edition of World What's Up, where my guest today will be Natalie Symes. We will be chatting about her career as a GP and why she's decided she wants to write a book. Uh, it's all very exciting. But first of all, a quick word from our sponsors, Endless Fugitive, who make wonderful designer clothes that not only looks good, but feels good too. And if you use the promo code World What's Up, you can get a 10% discount. That's World What's Up to get a 10% discount. So why not check it out? Good afternoon, Natalie, and welcome to the show. Hi, Andy. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Normally, I start the interview by asking my guests a little bit about themselves, where they grew up, and uh, what was it like growing up? I was born in South London. My mum was a nurse and my dad was a surgeon, uh, one brother and one sister. We moved to the Isle of Wight when I was about nine years old, and my dad went to work there as a consultant. So I had a pretty picturesque childhood growing up on an island by the seaside um, and had a very, very pleasant childhood, um, very happy family. My parents are still together. Um, yes, those were my beginnings. And then like most teenagers on the Isle of Wight, I was desperate to leave. So as soon as <laughs> as soon as I finished school, I upped and left. I had a year off and I went to live in Seville as an au pair girl. Um, and then I went off to university where I studied languages. I studied French and Spanish. I had no interest in being a doctor whatsoever. But that was back when you could do a degree with much, without much of a game plan um, of any description. So I then finished my degree and thought for the first time, what would I actually like to do for a living? So I spent a little bit of time thinking about that. And I remember being out sailing with my dad one day when I said, oh, I think I wish I wish I'd done medicine. And he pretty much turned the boat around there and then and headed back to shore um, and said, <laughs> you can still do it. You can still do it. And I signed up and I never looked back. So was, he, never, he never sort of like pushed you in that direction at all? He just no, he didn't push any of us in that direction at all. Um, I was a bit of an all-rounder at school, but I uh, was like quite a lot like my mother. My granny was French and my mother was a linguist. And so I really enjoyed studying languages. And I'm really pleased that I went that way rather than going straight into medicine um, I had the privilege of studying literature and language and history for four years. And I then told my partner that I wanted to go back to college for another five years. That was going to be nine years as an undergraduate, which is really stretching it. Um, and I managed to get a place in medical school and, and off I went. So it was just yeah. that moment. What, what do you think it was that clicked in your mind and made you think, yeah, this is something I really fancy doing? Well, maybe dad had been whispering to me in my sleep. I don't know. <laughs> but um, it just sort of fit. I think going into a caring role was definitely on the cards for me. I definitely thought about going to work in the charitable sector or something. There was something about the social context of medicine that appealed to me. And I really did feel that I'd had the most crazily privileged childhood um, and I definitely wanted a job that would have a social role and where I could actually give something back. 
Um, having said that, when I qualified for the first year, I just thought, oh, my God, what have I done? Uh, this has been a big mistake, which is actually, I think, familiar to a lot of doctors when they qualify and they start working. It's not really like being a doctor when you first qualify. You're running around like a sort of gopher, runner, administrator. You're not doing anything which is even vaguely related to being a doctor. Um, but very quickly after that, I realised I was in the right right field for me. Um, and I, I really wanted to be a GP. So that's the path I followed. So you you enjoyed that for the best part of 20, 20 odd years. I think you I remember you yep. saying you've done that. Yep. So you decided to to write a book now. Why is that? I think I'd always had a bit of a fantasy about writing a book. I absolutely never thought that I would. And then I had a patient a few years ago, um, a lovely lady who I'd been looking after for probably about 15 years, and she developed dementia. She lived on her own, had one niece who lived at least an hour away. And as with as always happens with dementia, she became more and more unwell and less and less safe at home. Um and her niece started writing to me about once a week. So she would email me. And they were these sort of outpourings of grief and anguish and anxiety, sometimes asking for help, sometimes updating me, but often just offloading and just needing to share the burden with somebody. And it was reading her emails that I just thought, I just think this should be a book. So I approached her and my patient and I said, what? do you think? And the niece said, yes, I really want this story to be told. Because what the story was about was how our society has no system in place whatsoever to help people in this situation. Um, we've got a growing pandemic of dementia. It's the number one cause of death in women. Um, we've got an aging population. And yet, there is no system for looking after people in this situation. And I've seen this happen time and time again with my patients, even the patients who've got families around them. You end up battling with the system for about a year. And it's I would I just watched my patients suffering. She was really suffering. She was so frightened on her own at home. Um, she was no longer able to look after herself properly. And when we eventually got her into a care home, which was more by luck than anything, I went to visit her and she was absolutely thriving. It was like night and day. Um, and so I've written my book about her. I've written about some of my other patients and their experiences as well. But I've also I'm writing about the care industry, about how it works currently in the UK I've been visiting various care homes in the UK that do things very, very differently. And so it doesn't have to be the way that we generally see it. Um, it can be done really, really, really well. And without loads, it's not about resources at all. It's just about having the will and the motivation and about understanding what ageing well means. And I think in the UK, we've got a very, very unhealthy relationship with the elderly elderly um I don't think there's any respect for the elderly we don't value the elderly so really past the age of 60 65 people are just put out to pasture 
and we seem to be quite comfortable leaving them to languish on their own or languishing in institutions which are really motivated by making money. There's an enormous industry in the UK and a lot of money being made out of out of the elderly. And they're not designed around the needs of the people who live there. They're designed around the needs of the carers and the management. So it's far more convenient to get everybody out of bed at 7.30, give them their medication at eight and their breakfast at quarter past eight. But I don't know about you, but I, when I'm 85, 90, if I'm no longer able to live independently in my own home, I still want to choose what time I get up, how I spend my day, what I want to eat, what time I want to eat. I don't want to be stripped of all of my independence and my autonomy. And I think the way we look after the elderly in the UK is an absolute disgrace. So I've been able to to pour my passion for this topic into my book and it's been a really great process it's also a personal journey of course and discovering discovering something completely different about myself having done one career for so long and working at one practice doing the same thing it's really nice to step out of that and say oh Natalie, there's there's other strings to your bow, which is quite a nice thing to discover at my my age. So there's, there's two questions that come to mind. Uh, I think you answered one of them a little bit. So these facilities that are doing it right, what exactly are they doing? Is it the fact that they all let you get up when you want to? And uh, what are they doing that the others aren't? It's about a whole ethos. The idea is centred around creating a home. It's a home for these people they're the ones who are paying for it so people make their own decisions they live their own lives but they also they have a reason to get up they have a reason to to get out of bed and to spend their day whether it's getting involved in cooking their own lunch or doing their own laundry or tidying up um they still have motivation i've been also sort of looking at the places around the world where people live to a much, much older age, but live well. Um, some of them are not surprising. So Japan, of course, people live to an old age, but they have they have meaning in their life. So you have lots of people who still work in their 80s and their 90s. They choose to do that because they want to be useful. They want to have a a reason, a meaning in their life, a reason to get up. Um, there's another, uh, so there's an island in Greece called Icarus where people live on average 10 years longer than the rest of Europe. The obvious things like amazing diet and lots of ex exercise. So the topography of this island, you know, you, you can't go and buy a loaf of bread without walking up two hills. Um the sunshine, living off the land, living very organically, but also being a part of a community. And that's the other thing we really get wrong in the UK. You know, again, we've got a pandemic of loneliness. I mean, that's just outrageous. You need society. Human beings are sociable animals and creatures. And so being part of a community. So you see this community in Icarus where you go and have 
the elderly will go and sit in the town square and have a coffee in the morning and they will chat to everybody of all different ages. And so they're all part of a community. They're not socially isolated, which is what we're doing a lot in the UK. There's another community in, um, if I tell you the whole book, no one's going to go and buy it. So I think I need to hold back some of the information. But there's, so there's another community in, in America, which is not somewhere you'd necessarily think you'd go to see how to live a long, good life. But it's a place called Loma Linda, which is a community of Seventh-day Adventists. And they are really strict about exercise. So they actually believe from the scriptures that um, our bodies they are temples. Our body is God. So you have got to look after your body. So you go to the gym there in the morning and there are 90-year-olds sort of pushing weights. And um, But again, it's about being part of a community. So you go to the, the church service on the Sabbath and the place is heaving. And that sociability, that being part of a community is a really, really huge thing. See, I can relate to a lot of what you're saying there because it, it, in my own family like uh, my dad he he loved his work um he was a plumber and he loved going in every day and he managed to eke it till about 67 then they made him retire and pretty much he used to work 12 hour days uh and he lived to his work because yeah as I say he loved it when he made him retire he didn't have any real hobbies so he just sat at home. We were teenagers. He wanted to maybe play the occasional game of dominoes with us, but we wanted to go out. So he literally yeah. sat in a chair for yeah. the best part of two, three years. Then he had a stroke. Yeah. He wasn't a part of any kind of community or social. Yeah. So I, I can I listen to you say that. I can really relate to that. And and that I think I don't think that's a unique situation. No, and whilst a lot of us might you know, when you are going through the slog of work, you might resent your work. You've still had a reason to get up every day, whether it's looking after your children or going into your work, it still gives value and meaning to your day. Looking at these communities in Japan, you often see four generations of a family living in one household. And the great-grandparents are looking after the great-grandchildren They've still got a real role. They've got a value. Um, so I think those are some of the really intrinsic things that I think need to be at the centre of how we design institutional care and giving people meaning, giving people a role, giving people value. Like I said, a social side of things. There's this uh, model in, Holloway, in, in Holland called Hogaway, which is um, a dementia village. And they have long waiting lists for people wanting to go into there. So when you're diagnosed with dementia, knowing that you're likely to end up losing your independence one day, people want to go and live in these villages. And the villages are based around, you sort of have a community plaza and on the plaza there's a hairdresser, a cinema, a shop, a cafe um, and, and a laundress and so on. And you live in a house with a few other like, like-minded people all the people who work in this community are carers but they don't come across like carers um so you get up you live independently but you're safe you're looked after you get the support you need or want but you make all your own decisions you choose what to eat when to eat just all of those sorts of things 
Because I just talking about now, I I'm at the age now where literally most of my parents and my well, my parents are gone, but most of my friends' parents are over an age where they, there's a lot of them who are suffering from dementia and, and it's it's hard on them and it's hard for their spouses to have a, a community like that would be amazing absolutely amazing mm. Mm. so mm. what do you what do you want to achieve um with the, oh by the way tell us tell us what's what's the book called it hasn't been published yet but it will be called the dementia revolution the dementia revolution and and, and when when do you think we might be looking to see that oh can't <laughs> answer that question um i'll get back to you on that one andy you you can yeah, release, let me know let me know it on sure. your podcast. Yeah. yeah what do i want to achieve with the book i want um i want to start the conversation or you know i think that's a, a bit presumptuous i think the conversation is going on but i want the conversation to get louder and you know i hope that the powers that be listen someone out there who does have who's in a position where they can affect change, will do something about it. I think as we've had an ageing population, the only discussion that I've heard about is the pensions crisis. But what I haven't heard about is the care crisis. I think there was a lot of talk about the carers crisis during the pandemic, when it was recognised the enormous work that carers do, both paid carers and unpaid carers. The number of unpaid carers in the UK is vast. And the carers who are being paid are being paid an absolute pittance. So the standard of care given is really, really variable. You have people who aren't trained properly, who don't understand dementia. um, And anyone can go and be a carer. There's no sort of, you know, after you've done your manual handling course, there's not an enormous amount of training that you need to do to be a carer. Um, So I want that to change. I want our care industry to look very, very, very different. All of the care homes that I've been to visit have been charitable organisations or social enterprise. None of them have been profit-making companies. And profit-making out of the care industry strikes me as really wrong. I don't think this should be a profit-making field. And I've spoken to people whose relatives have gone into a care home, which has been really, really good. And then the management has changed and everything there changes. I went to visit one care home near Aberdeen, which was really fantastic. And it was part of the Camp Hill movement. So the Camp Hill movement is the Steiner schools, which a lot of people have heard of. My and kids this is, went to Steiner schools. They went to a Steiner school. Well, there you go. Well, this is their only care home in the UK. And um, they do things differently there so they use um circadian lighting so circadian lighting mimics the natural course of light through the day and there's a huge evidence base for using that and reducing your prescriptions so not having to prescribe sedatives antipsychotics antidepressants um there's other lot there's a lot of other dementia friendly um, methods that can be used um people with dementia are very very sensitive to noise So having certain sort of acoustic um, elements in the way that you build build the home is really, really important. Having really, really bright primary colours. People with dementia find it difficult to distinguish between different shades. So things like that, which, again, it's not about investment or money. It's just about 
being motivated to do things to meet the needs of the people who were living there. Um, there's a brilliant book called Being Mortal by Atul Gawande, and he talks about the care industry. Um, and a colleague of his went to work in a care home and managed to persuade management really to change things. Because when he got there, he just thought there is no life in this place. So he he got them to take some risks. So they got cats and dogs. They bought real plants for each person's room and threw out all the plastic pot plants. Every resident was given a bird in a cage. They had an aquarium with fish. They had chickens outside. They put in a creche um, and the place just came to life. And the number of prescriptions for antidepressants, antipsychotics um, all went down. Um, and some people got better and went home. So, you know, as a doctor, I could go into a nursing home and I could prescribe antipsychotic medication to patients and no one would bat an eyelid. And they are really dangerous drugs. Whereas if I went to the management and said, let's get a dog, there would be endless forms and arguments about health and safety. And that is just like, well, Cost what is that about? Is it, is it cheaper to give them the drugs than to buy a dog? No. Drugs are expensive. And they lead to side effects and consequences and people fall over and just have really sedated individuals. But quite often it's staffing issues. They use a particular formula in a lot of um, care homes to, to calculate the minimum level of staff required at any one time. Well, that presumes that everyone's care needs are identical 24-7. You only need three people to have a urinary tract infection and everyone's needs change and you'll need one-to-one -one care. Well, if you haven't got any more staff and you can't provide one-to-one -one care, then what you want to do is sedate the patient. Wow. So and that's not good for that. You, you're, you're zombifying people to make life easier for yourself. Yeah, exactly. That's crazy. That is absolutely barbie. <laughs> I know. I know. I would, it's the fact that I could just hand out antipsychotics like Smarties and no one will bat an eyelid. Well, actually, th there have been more regulations put in recently and we do review them more and we are encouraged to reduce prescriptions. But we still prescribe far too much, in my view. Um, you seem like you know you've been at GB for over twenty years, and now you're you're going for a completely new career path. Um, are you going to miss being a GP? Yeah, definitely. Um, being a GP is is an absolute privilege. It's one of the most amazing jobs that I could possibly imagine. I have loved my career. Uh, I have worked at the most incredible practice. Uh, with an incredible team of people. Um, I've worked in Tower Hamlets, which is absolutely fascinating place to live. Very sort of, um, very, very deprived, uh, very interesting ethnic mix. I've learned a lot from my patients. I've seen a lot of pathology. I've seen a side of life which, you know, I would only have learned about from TV if I hadn't been there. To actually see how people live, to see the poverty that's out there. It's been really, really fascinating. So, yes, I will definitely miss it. But at the same time, it is utterly exhausting. It's extremely stressful. It's very difficult now in primary care. Um, 
I don't particularly want to be on the phone to patients all day. I really enjoy seeing my patients face to face. But we can't recruit doctors for love nor money. We're very, very understaffed. Our patients are all really pissed off. They're pissed off with so many different things in society, but we're quite an easy place to come and, and dump all of that. So our patients are really frustrated and I wish I could help them more. So I will miss it. Who knows? I might go back to it at some point, but I'm going to go and do some work in community women's health instead and also working at the university at the medical school. So what sort of stuff are you going to do in, in terms of the women's health stuff? So I've always specialised in women's health. Uh, so there are hubs in the community now where all referrals for gynaecology will go through the hub. So it's run by myself and another GP with a specialist interest and some hospital consultants. And we'll look at all the referrals, decide which ones need to actually go to the hospital, which will be a few, a small number. And then a lot of them will be managed by ourselves with advice and input from the hospital team. Okay. Um, this is a question I thought interesting. If, if you could get a magic wand and change anything within the health service, what would you do? <laughs> it's a big one it is a really big one you know the sort of obvious answer is endless resources but I, I worry that we've been pouring resources since the NHS since I started working in it and it's just a bottomless barrel I think we need to think completely differently about how we how we finance the NHS um, and I dabbled in sort of management and politics for a, a short period of time. And it's definitely not for me. So I leave it to the powers that be to sort it out. Um, I believe so strongly in having a public health service that is free at the point of need. And I think we are so lucky in the UK that we have that. And patients come from overseas and they are still astonished that it is free. Yeah. But it is... Having worked in it for so long, I used to be so, so proud of the NHS and I'm not anymore. It's not fit for purpose. We're not serving our, our population at all. It is disgraceful that people are waiting so long for an appointment, so long for an operation, that people cannot see a GP face to face when they want to. Um, and sadly, I think... I think the NHS is being privatised by stealth. So I don't think the population are really aware of what's going on. There's a lot, a lot, a lot of private companies who are making a lot of money out of the NHS from our tax. It's really quite sad. And and I well, I funny enough, I was literally saying this to a guy from Brazil and he was saying, You don't know how lucky you are to over there. And I said, We we are lucky to have it because because they have nothing over there. Yeah. And and so many countries yeah. so and it's something that we I agree hundred percent we should be treasuring and trying to to, yeah. to give it everything it's got, but that's not the case. Every time I hear someone say that we should charge people to be seen, I just <laughs> I scream inside because you will you will you will further um widen the the, the gap between the haves and the have nots. Because uh if you haven't got the money to pay, 
you won't go and see the doctor and so you will suffer. And those who are wealthy and who can afford it will continue to do well. And, uh, you know, the number of people I have seen in my career who would never have gone near a doctor if they had to pay, you know. And, it's, and that happens in the States all the time. People literally yeah, buy because they, they, they can't. They, they say, well, how much is this going to cost me? And you hear mm. Americans say that in the UK and we're like, uh, it's not going to cost you a penny, actually. Yeah. I think the other thing I would do if I had the magic wand would be depoliticize it. So I would take it out of the hands of the politicians because each new health minister wants to make their mark, you know, so there's no long term thinking. It's all so short termist and just thinking about the next vote. Yeah, that's that would be good. Yeah, take it completely out of their hands. That that would be the way forward. Yeah. Okay, a final question. Uh, if you could go back and have a chat with your, say, 14, 15 year old self, what would you say? Ah, so what advice would I give myself? I think um, I've thought about this one and, and I don't know if it makes much sense. And I really don't think it would make any sense to my 14 year old self. What I would probably say is that it's OK to be good enough. So I went through my earlier life not planning to be good enough at anything, but planning to be really fucking awesome. I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on your podcast, but to be really quite amazing at everything. So I was aiming to be an excellent GP, an excellent GP partner, an excellent daughter, sister, friend, an excellent mother, an excellent wife. That's just not possible. I really was on a hiding to nothing with that plan. You know, I think I'm slightly a victim of my generation. And I think uh, my generation of of the female generation, uh, I think we've been taught that we can have it all. So we expect to look amazing. So we'll be going out to work looking great. And then we'll be a really amazing mother producing home cooked food. And our children will be speaking two languages and playing the piano. Uh, and then we'll go off to Pilates and we're just going to be brilliant at everything. So I clearly did, obviously did get to a point where it just all came tumbling around around me. And, <clears throat> and I did end up seeing a psychiatrist and he just said to me, he said, Natalie, it's just fine to be good enough. I just thought, oh, God, I wish someone had said that. I wish someone had said to me before. And and that's been my mantra ever since. Just be good enough. Nice, brilliant. Have a takeaway. You know, and, and, and it wouldn't have made any sense to me when I was 14. And I was doing some mentoring at um, uh, a, a local secondary school um, a few years ago. Uh, and I had a mentee. And we were all asked to give advice. And I gave him this advice. And I think he looked at me and just thought, no idea what you're talking about, love. <laughs> I think I need to come up with some different advice for for people at different stages of life. But I think certainly people, young women going through their twenties and thirties, I would say that to them. I think that is I'd say to myself at fourteen was would probably be like I don't know, don't smoke and uh, try not to drink so much or something. <laughs> like that. I think that just be good enough is great. It's a great starting point. 
Thank you very much. What a lovely, lovely note to leave it on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I can't wait to, for the book to come out. Let us know when it's out so we can give you, we'll give you a big plug out in here because it's something I, I really think does need to get, uh, and with the population growing in that regard, we need all that we can get. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Natalie, for joining us today. Thank you, Andy. My my better bit of advice for a 14-year-old is dance more. Dance <laughs> more? Dance more, yeah. I think that'd be Brilliant. the best advice. Wasn't that an interesting and informative interview with Natalie? I've learned so much. We've had some wonderful guests on over the last three seasons. If you haven't heard some of their interesting stories, please do go back and have a look at our back catalogue. We've got some great guests to come, so please check them out as well. And a massive thank you to our sponsors, Endless Fugitive, who are again supporting us with um, kit for our up-and-coming triathlon. Thank you, and look forward to catching up with you all again very soon. Bye-bye.